This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Morning, everyone. It's uh, it's a little disorienting to be in a room where I'm so familiar with stranger faces than I'm used to seeing on a Sunday morning. Uh, but it, it was it's a real privilege to be able to preach to you this morning. So I'm really thankful to Adam for the uh, invitation. We I also want to express the really deep, heartfelt gratitude to your whole church for opening the doors of uh, your building to us. It's been such an incredible blessing to us, the use of this uh, facility. And not just that we're sharing one roof together, but uh, even in more recent days, the opportunity to be able to do some joint events together, like the most recent Good Friday service that we did together. And then just really uh, the weekend ago, when we had our uh, Pumpkin Fest outreach to the community and uh, saw over 35 new families sort of show their faces <coughs> that were outside our churches come and check out that event. And so that was really exciting. And so I really hope that we would see more and more of that in the, in the days ahead. Um, uh, before I get into the actual text that I want to preach this morning, I did think, I thought it'd be helpful for me to share a little bit about my own story. And I'm going to kind of circle back to it at the end of the message as well. But as Adam shared, we uh, served as missionaries in Kenya, Africa, for five years. And so that's a picture of my family there. My wife is actually in the back there in the AV booth uh, running my slides for me. So my wife, Betty, and I have five children, three girls and two boys. Uh, This is kind of an old picture, though. And so they're, they're significantly more grown up. That youngest one there is a junior in high school right now. So our eldest on the far left is married and living in the South Loop area of Chicago and uh, working. Um, actually, the youngest one, his name is Judah. He was born on the mission field. Uh, we, my wife was seven months pregnant when we left for the field. And so you could imagine the stress level we had of uh, going there and having a child overseas in a setting that we were totally unfamiliar with. We lived in a small town called Capsuar, which is in the beautiful highlands of the Great Rift Valley toward, to, to the far western side of the country. And I served at a mission hospital uh, called AIC Capsuar Hospital. Hospital was started in 1933 and has a really long storied history of serving the people in that area. It was a 160-bed hospital that was run just by myself and one other doctor. And so we were basically tag-teaming. He was a surgeon, and I'm a family doc, and we were just on call every other night. And so for uh, about a year, we lived a very insane schedule trying to help everyone that came through the doors of our hospital. Eventually, though, I did transition to becoming the medical director of the hospital. And in that position, was able to bring about some really meaningful change to make it more sustainable financially so that it could keep serving the poor people in that community without us having to constantly raise our prices through income-generating projects and starting a nursing school and things like that. We served a tribe known as the Meriquet. And they're a part of a family of tribes known as the Kalinjin. And if you watch the Chicago Marathon, or basically if you watch any marathon or watch the Olympics and see these Kenyan runners, they come from this tribe. And so they had a high-altitude training camp right by where we lived. And so we would see these runners run by us all the time. And it was just really fascinating thinking that many of these guys had won gold medals in Olympics and had won the Boston Marathon. And they're just running on these dirt roads in the mountains of Kenya 
uh, practicing and training for the next marathon. I'll have a bit more to share about the work we did in Africa at the very end of the message, but uh, I want to get into the message itself right now. During the early uh, ministry of, uh, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, um, I think we could safely say that his mission was misunderstood by just about everybody, including his own disciples. The Israelites were looking for a Messiah who would be a political or military figure. And he, in their expectation, would conquer their Roman occupiers and restore Israel to its former glory like it was in the days of King David and King Solomon. And so when Jesus ended up crucified on a Roman cross, his followers were utterly disappointed and confused. And fearing for their own lives, they all ran and hid. And everyone assumed that Jesus was just one more failed Messiah with empty promises that he couldn't live up to. But then three days later, he would rise from the dead and begin to appear to his disciples and to other witnesses. Luke chapter 24, verse 44 to 47, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so this resurrection of Jesus would change everything and give a totally new understanding to his mission, what he was accomplishing when he died on that cross. And now as Jesus gathered his disciples in preparation to ascend back to heaven to be with his father, he gives what is famously known as these last words, the Great Commission. And that's the text I want to focus on this morning. Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to, Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they, had, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus' charge to his disciples is to go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, the church doesn't exist for its own benefit, but to bear witness to the name of Jesus so that the saving power of the cross could be for the benefit of all peoples, all nations. And yet I think we have to recognize that as Christians, there is this very real danger of a sort of self-preoccupation, a self-focus that could almost result in a smugness, in this knowledge that we are saved, and isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? And in that smugness, we can very easily lose our sense of mission. And in fact, I would argue that's exactly the unfaithfulness that resulted in Israel for the Jews who considered themselves to be God's chosen people and yet had absolutely no desire to share that message of God's love to the rest of the world, 
to the Gentile nations. And that's why through prophets like Isaiah, God would send this message to his people. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God was in essence saying to his people, all you care about is yourselves. But your thinking is too small. Your vision is too small. My vision is so much bigger than just your future. I want to use you to reach the nations. And what we see in these words of God spoken through his prophet Isaiah is that God is jealous for his own glory. To make his name known to all peoples. And the Israelites failed to reach out to these other nations because I think what it ultimately revealed is their lack of passion for God's glory. And I think the truth is that that is a real danger for the church even today. David Platt in his book Radical writes, we live in a church culture that has a dangerous tendency to disconnect the grace of God from the glory of God. Our hearts resonate with the idea of enjoying God's grace. We bask in sermons, conferences, and books that exalt a grace centering on us. And while the wonder of grace is worthy of our attention, if that grace is disconnected from its purpose, the sad result is a self-centered Christianity that bypasses the heart of God. The message of biblical Christianity is not, quote, God loves me, period, as if we were the object of our own faith. The message of biblical Christianity is God loves me so that I might make him, his ways, his salvation, his glory, and his greatness known among all nations. Now God is the object of our faith. And Christianity centers around him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. And that is my prayer even as I speak to you this morning on this missions weekend here at Our Savior is that we, as the church, would be consumed not so much by our needs, that they get met by God, but the sense of being used as a blessing to the nations, to recover a passion for the glory of God in this world. And listen, there's so much that could be said about this great commission, but there's just one perspective that I want to focus on this morning, and is what Jesus says about his authority which becomes the foundation by which he charges his disciples to disciple the nations of the world. The gospel of Mark begins with this introduction in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I think most of you in this room know that this word gospel, literally translated, means good news. In the Greek, that word is euangelion, from which we get our modern word, evangelism, which means to share the good news of Jesus with other people. But what you may not know about this Greek word, euangelion, is that it's not just a generic word for good news. If you look at where this word euangelion occurs in the historical record in the first century, what you discover is that it actually was a more technical word that was used most often to describe a royal pronouncement. A royal pronouncement. And so if you look at an inscription referring to Caesar Augustus way back in 6 AD, around the time of the birth of Christ, you find what has been labeled as the gospel of Augustus. And this is what the inscription says. 
the birthday of Caesar Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, or euangelion, concerning him. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order and have become God manifest. Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of our earlier times. And so when we speak about the gospel, or the good news of Jesus Christ, I think it's important that we understand that what the New Testament writers were doing was they were saying that by saying this is the good news of Jesus Christ, we were in essence declaring a royal pronouncement about this man named Jesus. It was in essence a declaration of how Jesus was king. Jesus explains the gospel himself like this. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the euangelion of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so one of the the patterns you'll see throughout the gospels is that whenever Jesus talks about the good news or the gospel, he almost always links it with the message of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for for this purpose. And so when we think about what we mean when we use this word gospel, We have to understand that in Christ's own understanding, it was a very tight attachment with what it meant for him to be king and what it meant for him to usher in through his ministry, his death on a cross, the kingdom of God. So on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers, Peter would preach to the crowd. And in that sermon, he would say in Acts 2, 32 to 33, this Jesus raised up and, uh, and of all that, uh, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witness, we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what's interesting is that what Peter is saying is that Jesus, through his death on a cross and his resurrection, became an exalted one who now sits enthroned at the right hand of God. This is king language. Mark chapter 14, verse 61 to 62, Jesus seems to be pointing to this exaltation himself that will happen after he dies. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. i got to be honest with you. These references of Jesus being exalted after the resurrection always confused me. I mean, after all, Jesus was God. (laughs) 
Before he went to the cross, he was the son of God, even before he became a man. And so what confused me was, how do you give Jesus a higher status than God himself? As if somehow through his death and his resurrection, he has achieved this enthronement as king over his creation. Well, let's take a look at this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the connection, tying it to this work on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, that word, highly exalted, that's used in this, our English Bible, actually, a, if you look at the Greek, it would be more literally translated as hyper-exalted or super-exalted. I think what Paul is saying here is this. To say that through his death, and resurrection, Jesus somehow became super exalted by his father. Does that mean that before he went to the cross, somehow Jesus was less than? That's not what it's saying. But I think what it means by talking about this enthronement language of Jesus becoming king through his death is to say that he accomplished a reconciliation with humanity that was not realized until he died on that cross. And so through his death for the forgiveness of our sins, he has made a way for his kingdom now to come forward in reconciling us with our God. That is why Jesus now stands super exalted as king on the throne, ascending as the ruler of his kingdom, and now calling humanity into obedience to him. It's the point that the cross accomplished a victory. His death won a salvation for us through the forgiveness of sins so that now he can sit on his throne and we can acknowledge his kingship in our lives. Matthew Bates in his book Salvation by Allegiance Alone writes, the son of God is now the enthroned and actively ruling son of God. This new super exalted status as cosmic Lord is not peripheral to the good news about Jesus. It is at the very heart and center, the climax of the gospel. Jesus has been enthroned as the king. Jesus' reign is a non-negotiable portion of the good news. When the gospel is presented today by a preacher or a teacher, most of the time this Jesus' reigns portion of the gospel is either entirely absent or mentioned as an aside. The cross and resurrection get central billing, but Jesus' kingship is tucked away off stage. We need to recover Jesus' kingship as a central, non-negotiable constituent of the gospel. And so it is in this understanding of what the term gospel means as a royal pronouncement that we have to understand Jesus' words to his disciples in the Great Commission. In verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 28, then Jesus came to them and said, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and disciple the nations. It is in this position of kingship with absolute authority over all creation that Jesus sends his disciples into the world to disciple them. Let me share a little story here. And hopefully it'll put together what I'm trying to lay out for you here. As a college student, I went on a number of short-term mission trips to Africa. And on one of these trips, what had happened was that we were paired up student to student and assigned a translator, a local translator. And we would be dropped off on this bus to these Muslim villages where we were basically given one simple instruction, go door to door and tell them about Jesus Christ and share your faith with them. And as naive undergrad students, we just obeyed and listened and did what we were told. And we were very enthusiastic, really excited. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you dream about and read in books. Like uh, I remember reading through Gates of Splendor about Jim Elliott when I was in college and was like, wow, I get to live the life now. And we enthusiastically knocked on the first door. And it didn't take long before we all realized that nobody in these villages wanted us there. We did not receive a warm reception. In fact, um, what we were met with was a lot of distrust and, frankly, a lot of aggressive arguments back at us. And they were constantly asking us, why are you trying to convert us? We are Muslims. You are Christians. You know, you stay on your side of the pond and leave us alone. Why are you disturbing our community like this? And what had actually happened during this trip was that in some of the villages, uh, when we would knock on doors and talk about Jesus, uh, that villager would go to the imam, to the, to the religious leaders locally there, and report us. And then what the religious leaders would do is they would go to the local mosque and using the loudspeaker that they would use for the call of prayer, they would use it and they would make this public, this PSA to the people and they would say, strangers are in our midst and they're talking nonsense and spreading lies. Don't open your door to them. And as soon as that call went out on the loudspeaker, no one would open their door to us anymore. And we were completely shut out of that village. After a couple of weeks of doing this, there was one particular day when we went into this Muslim village and we were on one side of the street and a couple friends of mine were on another side of the street and we heard this commotion and we went over to investigate and what we discovered was that there were these villagers that were picking up rocks and they were actually threatening to stone my friends because they were talking about Jesus trying to convert them. Thankfully, the local translator intervened and was able to de-escalate the situation and we kind of hightailed it out of that village unarmed. But after that experience, I remember just putting my hands in my face and thinking, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing here? We are not welcomed here. We are not wanted here. No one wants to hear what we have to say about this Jesus And in fact, we're just upsetting people more and more 
The more we do this, the more trouble we're causing. Village after village, going door to door, witnessing to Jesus. And I, I, if I'm very fully honest with you, I have to confess, there was a side of me that was saying, we should just leave these people alone, you know? Like, we're not causing good here, we're causing harm. But this is where I think we have to circle back to what Jesus says when he called his disciples and said, all authority has been granted to me. John Piper commenting on the authority of Christ to empower the Great Commission says this. On what possible basis do we have any right to tell anybody they should change their whole way of thinking and acting and become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Only one thing could justify such outlandish proselytizing all over the world, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and has been given an absolute authority over natural and supernatural forces so that every human and every angelic being will give an account to him. If Jesus has that kind of authority, then we Christians not only have the right, but are bound by love to tell other people to change and become his disciples. Those who bend the knee of allegiance to his authority have from him the right and the power to go and make disciples everywhere. Amen? Let's be frank. Outside these walls, this is not a popular message. Not even in America, right? We're kind of living in an age of new tolerance. The classic tolerance was, your views may differ from me, but I will defend your right to own those differing beliefs. The new tolerance says there's no such thing as real truth. So we just got to believe everything is equal in its truthfulness. And that's not what we believe as Christians, is it? Proselytizing to another nation, to another culture, to another religion is considered incredibly offensive in our day. What gives us the gall to tell somebody that they're living wrongly and the only right way is Jesus Christ? It's the fact that he, as king over his creation, lays claim over every human being that exists on this earth. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 to 10. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Christ, with his own blood, purchased people for himself. And it is in that firm conviction that he lays claim to them, that we have the courage to go and tell people of Jesus Christ and say to them, believe in him. Now, listen, truthfully, as I think back in that summer as a college student, I think our methodology was kind of flawed. <laughs> I think it would have been much more helpful rather than to be dropped like a bunch of green berets on a village and then start sharing if we could have actually developed some relationships and got to 
to know them and understand their lives and develop some trust. But let's be honest, methodology aside, there is a certain offense to this message that Christ is king that is unavoidable. And we as the people of God must be willing to bear the weight of even the shame of that name of Christ in our world. To let them know nevertheless there is a savior who loves them. We don't do this in an aggressive, uh, colonial, imperialistic attitude. We do this with a servant's heart and as an act of love and humility. But we nevertheless cannot shrink back from testifying to who Jesus is. Let me just share a story and I'll close with this. As I shared for five years, we were missionaries in Africa and we lived in the highlands of the Rift Valley, but below us, thousands of feet, was what is known as the Kirio Valley. Now, the place we lived was not modern by any means. The water that we used came from a river. Electricity only came a few years before we got there. Uh, we thought that we were really living in the bush. But you go down to the valley, <laughs> and it makes the highlands look like the Marriott, you know? I mean, they've got nothing down there. Nothing. Um, and down in this really desolate land is another tribe known as the Pokot. These Pokot people are a very proud and independent people. And what was so jarring to me the first time I went and met these Pokot was that Kenyans are just some of the most friendly people I had ever met. You know, everywhere we go, they're just greeting us and so hospitable. But when I drove for the first time through Pokot territory, I just was met by a lot of glaring stares. Basically like, why are you driving through our territory here? And they have this interesting belief that all cattle in this world belong to them. <laughs> That's their belief. They believe that God has given to their tribe all the cattle in the world. So if you are in possession of a cow, it's their cow not yours. And as a result of this worldview, what they would do actually is that they would raid villages, killing every man, woman, and child in that village and stealing their cattle. For us, it looks like they are cattle raiders. For them, they're only rightfully claiming what belongs to them as a birthright from God. And when you drive down to the valley, if you go to the next slide, Betty, you will see these villages the wreckage of what the Pokot have done among the Marikwet. These are Marikwet villages, the people that I served. They, would, uh, they used to attack with bows and arrows. But once they got armed with AK-47s, they were able to dramatically ratchet up the violence. And now they would come in pickup trucks and just mow down everyone around 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning when everyone was still sleeping. And then they would take all the animals and run into the wilderness. You can go to the next slide. You can see another picture there of another Marikwet village that was the victim of these Pokot. And the government was trying all kinds of things to reach out to these people, starting educational programs and schools and agricultural projects. But the Pokot were just notoriously resistant to any of these attempts. But as I began to pray about these people, God began to lay a burden on my heart 
that these Polkot need Jesus as well. And so what I began to do is I began to bring medical teams with me down into the valley. And here's the thing. You may resist educating your kids. You may not want to settle down into an agrarian lifestyle. But listen, when you're sick, you're sick. And you need a doctor. And so regardless of their pride and their independence, they needed help medically. And so when we would bring these medical teams down there, they lined up in droves. And we did all of it for free. And as we did so, if you go to the next slide, we would pray with them and tell them the reason why we bring you this medicine and this help is because there is a king enthroned on his throne named Jesus Christ who loves you and wants you to know his love for you. After doing this for a couple of years, team after team doing this medical work, I thought it was finally time to go down there with some evangelistic teams and really now try to see if anyone was willing to follow Christ. And so if you go to the next slide, um, actually, Betty, is there one with the Polka women? Can you go to that one? Yeah. Um, Yeah, we, we would do these dramas in the marketplace and we would recreate the the gospel story of the life of Jesus, and it was the most disheartening thing. When we got to that part in the story talking about how Judas betrayed Jesus and through deception basically got him killed, and then when we reenacted the crucifixion scene with one of the college students sitting there being crucified on a cross in that marketplace, the Pocot actually began to laugh because they thought it was the hysterical They thought it was the funniest thing, this deception. And I thought, these people will never receive the gospel. (laughs) There's no way these people are going to be saved. And there was this guy named Matt. He was the pastor of one of these groups, the first evangelistic teams that came down there. And I was like, you know, these polka, you got to, it's a little touchy here. You can't just force your way in. You got to be very, you got to read the room you got to be sensitive. So I'm not, we're not going to do an altar call or anything like that. We're, we're just going to present the gospel story, and I'll come back and send another team, and we're going to do this step by step. But this guy, Matt, he brought this church from Atlanta, and he was so excited about being able to reach an unreached people group in his mind that he just couldn't hold back. And he just said, if you want to follow Jesus, I want you in this marketplace to stand up in front of your fellow villagers and take a stand for Jesus. And I was sitting in the back sort of cringing, going, this may not go well for us. But if you go to that slide, 12 people stood up to follow Jesus that day. Uh, That pastor in the land had more faith than I did at that moment. And these Men and women that are standing before you became some of the first believers in that community. And there's another doctor named Kyle Jones who's continuing the work that we were doing there. And he goes down to the valley like once a month and he has planted churches down there. And now there are churches among the Pocot and hundreds of believers numbered among this tribe who now bow before the throne of Jesus and worship him alone. Amen. And I I think that that is what you and I have to understand when we live in this world that is so hostile to many of our beliefs. 
Listen, you don't have to travel halfway around the world to be able to do this. Maybe it's right in your backyard with your family and friends, your neighbors who also don't know who Christ is. And yet what we have to believe in the sincerity of our depths of our being is that Christ has purchased men and women of every nation through his blood that they might bow to him as Lord and Savior of their lives. Let's pray. As I just close in a word of prayer, we'll just invite you to reflect maybe on your own struggle with evangelism and sometimes how demoralizing it can feel in this current climate that we live in where the easiest thing is to just keep silent and to just follow the model, live and let live, you know, to each his own, different strokes for different folks. But the Bible tells a very different story. It says that when Christ died on the cross, that became the very means of his enthronement as king, where now he rules over his kingdom and calls the nations into allegiance to him and him alone. He alone deserves worship. He alone deserves our allegiance. And you and I are called to become witnesses of that good news that Christ is king to a world that is dying and in need of that message. Let me pray for us. Father, that is my prayer for our savior, for this church, for even Josh and Libby who are preparing to just uproot their lives and become messengers of that message in the Czech Republic. And for all of your saints in all the corners of this world who feel the weight of what it means to be your witnesses. We pray that your passion for your glory would be our own. And that as we take those risks and tell others about Christ, that we would know that your presence is always with us. That we don't do that in our own strength, in our own righteousness. But through the work of the Spirit in us, you can make us the kind of effective witnesses that can bear the name of Jesus to others, that others might hear that good news and believe. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.